Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that when we walk by the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is working in our life to mature us. He takes the doctrine in our soul, uh, brings it to our memory so that we can apply it, and that in turn is used to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. It produces in us uh, good works of a eternal value identified at the judgment seat of Christ as gold, silver, and precious stone. We can do the same thing in the power of the sin nature under the category of human good, but that has no value. It's categorized as wood, hay, and straw at the judgment seat of Christ. It's burned up, has no eternal value. So it's important for us to make sure that we've recovered from any uh, flaws, any failures. Any, when we trip up, we quit work, walking by the Spirit and start walking by the power of the sin nature. So we have to make sure we keep short accounts and we're in fellowship. I begin Bible class all the time with a few moments of silent prayer like this simply as a, it's important, but I do it as a pedagogical reminder so that we learn that habit and that that spiritual skill is uh, built, developed in us so that we can make that a part of our regular life. So we'll start off with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a privilege that we can come before you, that we come on the basis of grace, we come on the basis of a Savior risen, who is seated at your right hand, who stands evermore to uh, stand in our, in our stead, to represent us as our high priest before you, and it is on the basis of his completed, finished work on the cross that we have access to you, that we can directly come before you, boldly before your throne of grace. Father, we pray for those in this congregation who are not here Some are traveling, but many, many are sick. Some uh, have fatal diseases. Some are struggling with serious illnesses, and we pray for comfort for them, strength for them in this time of testing. And we pray that you might strengthen them and their families as they take care of them, that you might be glorified. Father, strengthen us. Help us to keep a divine perspective on our life, that we're here to serve you. We're here to grow to spiritual maturity. And the details of our lives will vanish away as insignificant once we are face-to-face with you and we perceive uh, the eternal scope of your plan for our lives. Now, Father, we pray that you might challenge us with what we study today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're back in our study in 1 Thessalonians. This is one of those series that I'm recording ahead of time. Uh, in the event of my illness or absence, 
uh, for the congregation. Therefore, I recognize that between lessons sometimes, several months may go by. So there may be a little more repetition than we're used to. And in the event that these are back-to-back, one Tuesday night, one Thursday night, then, uh, that, well, that's just how it is. But I think from my current perspective that... Uh, probably six or seven weeks has transpired since the last lesson at the very least. And so uh, we need to have a little review. I want you to open your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 1, and let's uh, refocus, get our attention back on this, uh, this great epistle. Uh, this epistle is basically divided into, into two parts. Uh, two parts. The first part of this epistle, which uh, <coughs> covers uh, the section from... Uh, one one down to uh, three thirteen, and that is a focus on uh, the present time, present events. Then chapters four and five focus on future events. So it's real simple to lay this out. The first two chapters are dealing with Paul's relationship with the Thessalonian believers, and the last two has to do with his his answers to their questions related to uh, end time events. Obviously, even though his period was short in Thessalonica, probably uh, two to three months, not two to three weeks as some suggest, but a little bit longer, he felt like a, at least a good overview of eschatology and specifically what we call personal eschatology was important. Personal eschatology has to do with what happens to each of us individually, what happens to you at the point of death, what happens to your loved ones at the point of death, and uh, whether there's such a thing as soul sleep or they go to, when they go to be with the Lord, the things of that nature. We'll get to that in the last couple of chapters. But the first couple of chapters are much more personal. Remember, Paul basically had to leave town in a hurry because of the opposition of Judaizers. Judaizers were Jews who were hostile to the gospel. They were hostile to the Apostle Paul. They loved the legalism of rabbinical theology, and they viewed Paul as not only the enemy but an extremely significant threat to Judaism. Uh, They're a perfect example of what happens with unbelievers who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. When we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, whether it's for a short time in our lives or over a long period of time in the life of an unbeliever, uh, hostility and reaction sets in to the truth. So that when somebody comes along and says something or challenges our our fantasy that we've generated in our minds as to how life works apart from God, uh, we react in anger. Anger is always a sign that we're not getting our way. And when the unbeliever doesn't get his way and we see believers uh, uh, say something about the truth, the result is often anger. At the time that I'm recording this, there's been a recent event that occurred that made the national news, and that was that um, the, the father of the uh, Doug Dynasty clan uh, made some comments in, about homosexuality in an interview in Gentleman's Quarterly. And yet the initial reactions that came from that were far beyond what he actually said. He was accused of all kind, saying all kinds of hostile things, comparing homosexuality with a variety of things. Actually, what comparison there was came out of a scripture that he quoted. But the, uh, the, the, the gay homosexual community, I had a professor at Dallas Seminary, used to call them SADs because they really weren't gay, they were SADs. But the um, um, 
gay, lesbian, transgender uh, cabal uh, reacts, and anybody who just suggests or indicates that their opinion is that what they're doing is wrong, the reaction is that they're accused of accusing uh, homosexuals of all kinds of horrible things. And if you actually read the words of this uh, interview, he was simply making some comparisons and stating that this was his opinion. And when, when uh, this morning in the news, they announced that um, the A&E network were, was putting him on hold or his, they didn't want him on the show now and, and because of all these uh, uh, <coughs> defamatory remarks that he had made, which he didn't at all. He didn't make it personal. He clearly made the point of Scripture that homosexuality is considered by Christianity to be a sin just like any other sin. And he quoted from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, uh, 10, and 11, indicating that this was, uh, was the case. However, uh, those who are suppressing truth and unrighteousness react in an inordinate manner out of the arrogance and the depravity and the perversity of their own soul. And as a result, uh, they hear things that are not actually said, and they manufacture libelous and scandalous responses that defame the character of righteous people. So we're moving into an era now in this country and in our world, uh, not unlike that which the Apostle Paul faced, where we are often going to be surrounded by crowds of people who consider Bible-believing Christians who are operating in humility and grace orientation toward them to be the enemy. And this is only going to get worse, and you have to be prepared for it. And so this is just a warning. So the Apostle Paul had to leave town, and uh, he was not able to return to Thessalonica until the third missionary journey, and we're not sure if he went there because it's not specifically stated in Scripture, but he went to that area in Macedonia, or Macedonia as we say in English, and revisited many of his previous sites. But by then, these questions were three or four years old. He had already written both First and Second Thessalonians, and uh, some of the issues weren't there. We found out in our study in Acts that after he, the third missionary journey, when Paul returned to Jerusalem, that some of these, some of the Asian, not from Greece, but some of the Asian Judaizers ran into Paul in Jerusalem and then raised false charges against him, stirred up the crowd in the temple, and they hauled him out of the temple to beat him to death, and, and they beat him severely before he was rescued by the Roman, a couple of Roman legions coming out of the uh, Antonio Fortress there on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, and that's what uh, the Lord used to preserve and protect the life of the Apostle Paul. So we're here in this first epistle. Paul is writing it still on his second missionary journey, and which is he wrote two epistles, first and second Thessalonians, and this is the first one he's writing to them. And part of his reason is to reestablish a personal connection with uh, these believers in Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica because they were somewhat concerned because he had left so quickly, really hadn't had enough time to establish the, that uh, close personal uh, personal relationship. So he's sort of amending some fences there, and then the second part answering some questions. On this second missionary journey, uh, the Apostle Paul followed this uh, purple line that we see on the map, 
where he was prohibited by the Holy Spirit from going into either Asia or to Bithynia as the Holy Spirit provided a special guidance to Paul and his uh, associates. They ended up at Troas where he had a vision of a Macedonian uh, man calling for them to come over to Macedonia with the gospel. They then took a ship, went by way of Samothrace to the port at Neapolis, and then their first converts were in Philippi. And uh, from Philippi, they, they had to leave also because of opposition, and some of those Judaizers that opposed them in Philippi followed him to Thessaloniki. And so here at Thessaloniki, he is there for a couple of months before he moved on to Varia, and then from there down to uh, Athens. So it is from Athens. He also has a somewhat cold response, even though there are a few converts. And from there he went to Corinth, and it is from there that he is writing this epistle. This map gives you a little bit closer view. Now, he opens up with a... Uh, prayer of thanks. This is uh, a standard format in his epistles, and he is thanking God and reminding the, his lit readers that he is always mindful of them. We covered this when we covered the first few verses talking about prayer and how important it is to have a prayer list, to regularly work that prayer list. You don't have to pray through everything in the prayer list every day because some of us have rather long prayer lists. If you use the prayer list from uh, West Houston Bible Church, then it is uh, several pages in length, and it may be too long. So you can divide it up into different segments. On Monday, you pray for one part of it. On Tuesday, another part. On Wednesday, another part. There may be some things you want to pray for every single day, but that is one way to organize it. So Paul is giving thanks to God always for all of them, continuously making mention, continuously bringing them before God's throne of grace uh, in, or, in, in his prayers. And then in verse 3 saying he, rem, he remembers them uh, without ceasing their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. That's the first part. I stopped in verse 3 and focused on these three phrases. It, translated by simple genitives, that's the of clause in uh, in English, work of faith, labor of love, and uh, patience or endurance of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I expanded that translation because the, the, it, we need to understand the nuance, the significance of that genitive. These are genitives of source for the most part work generated from their faith, not their belief in Christ, although that would be part of it, but from the doctrine that's in their soul. The word faith is often used in, in the sense of what is believed, the body of doctrine that we believe. And so this work that that is their Christian service is a result of what they have learned and their belief in what they have learned, their faith, and this is a part of the manifestation of the faith rest drill, as I pointed out the last time. Secondly, it's a labor motivated by their love for God the Father. Uh, or excuse me, I skipped over uh, from their generated by their faith from the labor motivated by their love for God the Father and for one another. And third, their perseverance, which is produced by confident expectation, produced by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. 
These three Christian virtues I pointed out are often stated in Scripture. We have them mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that now, that is, uh, this is not a word now that means an immediate right now, that if we looked at the context, I believe I reviewed that the last time, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we have a, a, a different word for now, which indicates now in this present immediate time versus now in this general time period or in this dispensation. The contrast in 1 Corinthians 13 is a contrast between the impermanence or the temporary nature of the sign gifts, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, and the permanence in this life, in this church age of faith, hope, and love. Faith is by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. And so when we get to heaven, that's going to be face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's by sight. And face-to-face is a term common to many of us, but uh, the concept of face-to-face here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is face-to-face with a mirror. Mirror reflects what uh, what it's looking at. And when we look into the mirror, the reflection is of ourselves. We're not looking through a glass darkly, as the King James translated. Uh, we're not looking through some sort of uh, semi-opaque glass at something else that has been rendered somewhat unclear by this glass. We're looking into a mirror, a reflective image of ourselves. That fits the model of the Word of God. But now, in this church age, uh, we, we faith, hope, and love abide, they continue in contrast to prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, which will cease. The point here is that the ongoing Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love need to be manifested in our lives, and these are often uh, reflected in spiritual skills that we develop. And I went over these spiritual skills. I'm reviewing them very quickly, very briefly. Confession of sin Uh, When we're out of fellowship, we have to confess so we're back in fellowship. This results in the ability to be filled by the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit. One of the ways in which we continue is our faith rest drill, walking by faith and not by sight. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in terms of doctrinal orientation, we're learning the Word of God, and it is transforming us, Romans 12, 2, so that we think not like the world, but like God. This is spiritual childhood. You have to develop these skills in order to advance in spiritual maturity. We don't necessarily learn them all in a straight-line order. But we do have to get this found, these foundational skills established so we can go to spiritual maturity. Uh, this is related to handling trials. Romans 5, 3 through 5 something we looked at. And we saw this connection between uh, tribulations. And as we go through those tribulations and we continue to apply the Word of God, we develop hupomenes, which is steadfastness or perseverance. Uh, perseverance develops character, proven character. Dokimazo has to do not just with a test in an abstract sense, but an evaluation. But not that's not the end of it. It's an evaluation in order to demonstrate the uh, value of something. So sometimes it's translated proof, proof of something's value. So it, perseverance develops proven character, and this then develops our confident expectation. 
So the second level of spiritual growth is spiritual adolescence called the... Um, the young man, the young men, rather, in 1 John 2.13, hope focuses us on the future, and this is the primary um, value or the primary skill of our personal sense for destiny, learning to live for tomorrow, uh, live today in light of tomorrow. Those of you who have had children or grandchildren know how it takes time before children begin to learn to think beyond the immediate. And in adolescence, physically, Emotionally, it takes us time to learn to think in terms of long-term strategy, long-term planning. Many people never learn this. They, they, they're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old, 15-year-olds because they're still just living for today, never in light of any long-term plan. Uh, but here we have the, those who spiritually develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We want to have success and victory at the judgment seat of Christ to rule and reign with him. And so we need that personal sense of our eternal destiny. Then we develop spiritual maturity skills, spiritual maturity skills. Not that we don't have these to some some form when we're young, but they really begin to come together and are are manifest consistently as we become uh, more mature. We have a personal love for God, which develops an impersonal love for mankind. We can't love one another unless we really understand God's love for us and develop a love for God. That's the foundation. Without that love for God, our love for others is often motivated by selfishness, superficiality, uh, shallowness. The third in this group is the occupation with Christ. The three work in tandem often as we go forward in the Christian life, and the result is joy. So these are the three levels that we have examined. Uh, it forms a bulwark to our soul against any kind of adversity, the thlipsis. And so I developed this idea as the soul fortress. You've seen some pictures around here that some people have drawn of the soul fortress. Soul fortress. And when we're using these skills, we can stay in fellowship. This is the, the these skills teach us how to continue to walk in by the Spirit, how to continue to abide in Christ, and, there, and it's in that situation that we are matured. It's called abiding in Christ, walking in the light, walking by means of the Spirit. Ultimately, it depends on our volition. All right, that gives us a quick review. Now, what I want to do today is I continue to sort of set up a conceptual framework that you and I can use when we come to many passages in Scripture. Uh, this helps us to categorize uh, the doctrines that we have, categorize the principles and the promises so that we can use them. Uh, analogy that one of my seminary professors used to use is that that uh, coming to the Bible, it almost appears to us as if we just have a whole mass of clothing that's in one huge pile on the floor. And what we need to do as pastors and teachers is give people some organizing principles, some coat hangers, as it were, so that we can put our suits in, in, in one area, we can put our shirts in another area, our slacks in another area, our shorts, T-shirts, whatever, in another area. And so what this these ten principles that I've talked about do is give you ten coat hangers for organizing your 
the spiritual skills that you're developing in your Christian life. Now, what we see in this diagram is a flow chart, a flow chart so that we can understand God's plan for our life and how he is moving us through our Christian life, ultimately to the end game at glorification. Remember, there are three stages to the Christian life. Phase one is called salvation or justification. Happens in a moment in time, and we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. We're freed from the penalty of sin so that our eternal destiny is secured. Our eternal destiny is heaven uh, with the Lord as a member of the bride of Christ, the church. Then we enter into phase two. Phase two isn't a moment in time. Phase two is the whole process of our life in time. Phase one is an instant when we trust in Christ, but in phase two, we're working out our salvation. We're working out the consequences of that new life in Christ, and we're learning to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. We're learning to walk in the light. We're learning to walk by means of truth. And we're learning to the Word of God so that it reshapes our thinking. We call phase two sanctification. We're being saved from the power of sin uh, on a day-to-day basis, learning to walk uh, in light of our new position in Christ and not in light of our old position as a sl- unregenerate slave of righteousness. So that's what's being depicted here, phase one, phase two, and then at death or the rapture, for those in the rapture generation, at the rapture we're absent from the body, we're face-to-face with the Lord, we are saved from the presence of sin, and saved from the presence of sin we spend eternity with God in heaven, but after at the uh, judgment seat of Christ, we will receive rewards based upon how well we did in terms of walking by the Spirit. Those who do well will receive many rewards. These rewards ultimately have to do with our roles and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity as members of the body of Christ. Those who do not who do not do well. The scripture says they'll suffer loss, but they'll enter into the kingdom. They'll enter into heaven, but they won't have positions of responsibility. They won't be close to the Lord. They won't be in a position of, of, uh, uh, of inner uh, and intimate fellowship. Okay, let's break this down a couple of ways. This is phase one, salvation. We trust in Christ and... At that instant, we are justified. We are receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which means that God credits to our account, credits to our account the righteousness of Christ. So that when God looks at, at what was formerly a bankrupt account, what he sees is a note that says, Don't look, don't worry about the bankruptcy of this account. Instead, redirect to this other account that has untold millions in it, and that's the basis for the uh, accreditation of this former account that's bankrupt. It's pictured in Scripture as a robe of righteousness so that even though we're still sinners, even though we are uh, still corrupt because of sin, we receive Christ's righteousness, which covers that, and it is the Christ's righteousness that's the basis for our justification, not our right. Fundamental issue. I, I, I Recently I spoke with Jim Myers, and he was talking about a church that he has been teaching in in Kiev 
that really has me talking. Ironically, the church is called St. Paul's. And one lady came up to him after about his third lesson where he was going through Romans chapter 4, and she said, I've been coming to this church for 20 years, and I've never heard about imputation. How very, very sad. But how very common today in a world where pastors frequently fail to really explain and teach the Word of God. And so this is one of the most glorious doctrines of Scripture, that my standing before God isn't based on who I am or what I do. It's based on who Jesus is and what he did at the cross, so that my salvation, your salvation, is dependent on his righteousness, not what we do or what we haven't done. So that's phase one. That's our freedom from the penalty of sin. Once we're saved, the question is, what do we do then? James 1 talks about tests, tests of faith. Actually, that should be understood as testing and evaluating the doctrine, the teaching that we've assimilated in our soul. We're going to learn things from the Word of God, and then God's going to take us into pop quizzes day in and day out to see if we will apply uh, what he has uh, what he has taught us and what he has said. And so we hit these tests of doctrine, James 1, 2 through 4. Each time we hit a test, remember that verse says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So you hit the test, it's unexpected, and you have a choice to make. Am I going to apply the Word of God, or am I going to go my own way? Am I going to do it like I've always done it? Am I going to use those self-protective, sinful strategies I've developed uh, through most of my life, functioning in arrogance, or am I going to trust the Word of God that is sufficient for me and has given me everything I need in order to have real, genuine happiness and stability in life? So we have these tests of doctrine, and we the test emphasizes our personal responsibility, our volition, and we can either be positive or negative. Now, when we're a positive, and we apply the Word of God, then we go through a little process here that I've indicated in this flow chart. When we're applying the Word, then because that is energized by God the Holy Spirit, empowered by God the Holy Spirit, and if you look down in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1, we read, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in also in power in plus the dative, by means of power and by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what provides the power, the ability to live the Christian life. So he produces divine good. Also, this produces life, not eternal ongoing life, but qualitative life, the abundant life that Jesus promised that's ours right now if we live in light of the Word of God. This, in turn, according to Romans 12.2, produces evidence. It produces evidence of that God's plan is good and righteous and holy, and it produces evidence before the angels in the angelic conflict, and it produces evidence before all mankind to the veracity of God's Word and the goodness of God and His love for us. That goes on to produce, as we see from Romans chapter 5 and James chapter 1, steadfast endurance. The more we practice 
perseverance, the easier it becomes. But it's never really going to be easy, is it? Sometimes it's just hard. Sometimes folks want to just give up. We feel like the burden on us is so heavy, but we have to know that promise. One I learned many, many years ago, one I encourage you to memorize, and that is the promise that says um, that God will not tempt us beyond we are able, what we are able, because he will uh, make a way to escape that we may be able to endure it. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that God is faithful and will not allow us to be tested beyond our ability. He's in control. So whenever you go through a test, whenever things seem to be too heavy for you, too hard for you, too difficult, and you just want to give up, you just want to peel off, you want to quit the race, God has given you a vote of confidence by putting you in, under that circumstance and in that situation, and he knows that you can handle it because you have the word of God to do it. And the issue is, are you just willing to do what God says to do? Are you just willing to apply the truth? So that produces a steadfast endurance, and over time it leads to spiritual maturity and spiritual adulthood. In contrast, down below we have a different series. If we reject God's Word, try to handle the problem on our own, then this either produces sin or it produces human good. But the Bible says either way it's temporal death. We're living like an unbeliever. We're living like a spiritually dead person. It's not producing anything of eternal value. It's not producing anything of eternal consequence or uh, that glorifies God, and it leads eventually to weak, spiritual weakness and instability in our lives. What James one five calls a a two souled person, Daisukas there, somebody who just waffles back and forth, and their life is characterized by emotional instability because they don't have the Word of God. Eventually, if you continue down that path, continuing to walk according to the sin nature, then this will lead to spiritual regression. You'll begin to lose ground spiritually and reverse course, and this can lead to a hardened heart. So the issue is, which cycle do you want to spend most of your time in? The upper cycle, walking by the Spirit, or the lower cycle? Now, if you're walking in the lower cycle, the way to go up is to, first of all, confess your sin, that first spiritual skill. This diagram here shows you the dynamics of the second spiritual skill, which is walking by the Holy Spirit. And as you can see, the way to walk by the Holy Spirit is to utilize the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation, as well as the other spiritual skills. Now, at the end of life, we die physically, or for some in the rapture generation, they'll be taken instantly in the blink of an eye to be face-to-face with the Lord in heaven at which point we end up at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, all of our works are going to be evaluated, and for those that are produced out of a walk by the Spirit, there is going to be rewards and inheritance, that which lasts eternally, that which impacts our eternal position, uh, both in the millennial kingdom and eternity as uh, members of the body of Christ. 
and the bride of Christ. For some, their works will all be burned up because they're wood, hay, and straw, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 and following. And the result is going to be temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ, a, a failure there. So there's not much that we can do. Now let me break this down for you a little different way. This is phase one, and then this is phase two. This describes phase two, and then this describes phase three. That gives you that little bit of organization to your thinking. Phase one is justification. Phase two defines the spiritual life and sanctification. And then phase three is glorification. Here we have the whole flow chart in and of itself, and I believe these are posted uh, somewhere up on the Dean Bible website. And you can download those so that you can put that in your Bible or you can have it readily available for your own reference in Bible study. All right, that helps us to understand what Paul has been saying in terms of faith, hope, and love in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, the faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, those three work together in tandem. Faith always has an object, which is the Word of God, Grace orientation always helps us understand the motivation for learning the word and the right attitude, which is humility. Patience or endurance of hope focuses on the second level of growth in adolescence, our confident expectation, living today in light of eternity, and labor of love indicates our work in serving God from a personal personal love for God the Father. Okay, and all of this is in our Lord Jesus Christ because we are in him as believers in Christ. At the instant of salvation, we become a new creature in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. It's in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God our Father, who is omniscient and omnipresent and continuously observing uh, what we are doing, how we are living, how we are learning, and how we are loving in the Christian life, and how we are growing. And then we come to verse 4. Verse 4 is one of those verses taken out of context, which seems to support a somewhat determinative view of history. You have several different views that people have put forth. One has to do with impersonal determination. Another has to do that everything is pure, raw, random chance. And that is the pagan view usually. Well, in paganism, you have both views. But under Darwinism, everything is under this sense of pure random chance. But the Bible splits the difference. In some ways, one is true. In other ways, the other is true. God and his sovereignty is so powerful and so capable uh, under his omnipotence that he is able to to guide and direct history and the details of history according to his plan without violating individual human responsibility. That means that as free agents, even though that freedom is uh, uh, affected by sin, it's not destroyed, we do not become automatons, we're not robots, God is not running the universe according to some arbitrary mechanistic plan, but that it is governed by his love and also governed by his uh, omniscience. 
the the knowing there's a causative or, or excuse me is an instrumental or excuse me causative participle because we know that's what he's saying to the Thessalonians you and I are brethren in Christ and you know something because I taught this to you because we know uh, brethren your election by God. Now, election is a word that indicates choice or selection, and in this case, by God. Now, it's real easy to read a false theology into this without doing your homework on what the Bible teaches about election. Election has to be a choice, but God has makes elective choices in history for different reasons, not all of which are soteriological. In fact, he doesn't choose who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. This is a fatalistic, deterministic doctrine that came out of uh, Augustinian theology. The more I read and discover Augustine, the more I realize that he was more affected by pagan philosophy than he was the Word of God. And that was resurrected during the Protestant Reformation by uh, Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk before he was saved and before he was kicked out, uh, before he left the Roman Catholic Church. These doctrines were also picked up by Jean Calvin and his followers uh, during the Reformation period. Later on, there were challenges to that, and the uh, uh, major battle in Reformation history in the early 1600s, 1604, you had the Synod of Dort, or 1614, excuse me. You had the Synod of Dort where the uh, Arminians who held one view uh, challenged the Calvinists. The Arminians selected a purely random viewpoint of history. Uh, There was true freedom in all of history so that a person could even be saved and then lose his salvation. Everything was ultimately based on human determination. In Calvinism, high Calvinism, everything is determined by God, everything. I don't believe that either are true or that either reflect the word of God. God, of course, is sovereign. Ultimately, God oversees everything in history But the question is, do we have a small God who oversees history by causing people to either believe or not believe? That's a very small God. A greater God is one that can still accomplish his his purposes, but without determining uh, the choices of human individuals. Now, 1 Peter 1-2 gives us a little help with this. 1 Peter 1-2 uh, tells us that these were uh, the, the elect are according to a standard, and that standard is the foreknowledge of God. Now, foreknowledge is an interesting term because among Calvinists, foreknowledge has been redefined not as knowledge ahead of time or prescience, but that foreknowledge is that which is part of God's knowledge which determines what will actually happen. In high Calvinism, God can't know anything until he first foreknows it. In high Calvinism, God does not know the alternatives. God does not know the hypotheticals. God does not know the what-ifs of history. But it is clear from Jesus that he knows exactly the what-ifs of history, for he told Capernaum, 
and other cities that rejected him that if Sodom and Gomorrah uh, had seen what they had seen, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He knows what would have happened under a different set of circumstances. And so this means that God's knowledge is not de- not determinative and that God's omniscience is not based on his foreknowledge, but foreknowledge comes out of his omniscience. In his omniscience, he knows all the knowable. A subcategory of knowing all the knowable is knowing what will happen in contrast to what might happen, what would have happened, could have happened, should have happened under different circumstances. And so foreknowledge is God's knowledge ahead of time. Now, within Calvinism, and the, the Calvinists are many in debate over election, the issue is on what basis does God choose who will be saved and who will not be saved? Is this simply a random arbitrary selection process that God makes apart from knowledge sometime in eternity past? That in the Calvinist view, God cannot know what will happen until he first determines what will happen. And so God determines that X number of people will be saved, and he identifies that those individuals. Because he's identified them, then in history, they will... Uh, they will show evidence, they will believe in Christ, and then they will show evidence of that. That leads logically to lordship salvation. It is a perverse teaching that violates the standards of Scripture and imposes a human system upon the Bible, and that is just fallacious. Foreknowledge still doesn't tell us what the criteria is that God uses to make that those selections. What we know of is that the gospel states that whosoever will is saved. That puts the ultimate responsibility for salvation on the individual. Now, just because there is no evidence of the criterion in Scripture, there's no clear statement of it, doesn't mean there's no criterion that God just arbitrarily chooses Evidence of, 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 uh, or absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And God chooses on the basis of something in His knowledge. You have two choices, logically. Either He chooses on the basis of knowledge or He chooses apart from knowledge. If it's apart from knowledge, it's random, it's arbitrary, it, it's irrational. If it's on the basis of knowledge, then there is information that God takes into account as he makes this selection, whereas we don't have a specific statement of Scripture as to what that is. We have enough information in Scripture to where we can come to a pretty good conclusion that that basis is God's understanding of an indiv- what an individual does at the point of gospel hearing, that when a person believes in Jesus Christ, He enters into Christ, and because he is in Christ, the elect one, he is then elect himself by virtue of his position in Christ, which is all understood and known in the foreknowledge of God from eternity past. And so we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, not according to random, arbitrary choices made by a God who is irrational. That is ultimately where Calvinism goes, although they will deny it with their dying breath. 
So verse 4 states that, that we are to know that we are selected by God. That also guarantees our eternal salvation and eternal security. Then Paul explains this a little further in terms of how he's been praying for the Thessalonians. And he says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much perseverance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So initially he talks about the power, the uh, power of the gospel, it's our gospel, that is our message. The word gospel here is a word that, that we need to talk about just a little bit. It's the Greek word evangelion, which means the good news. The English word gospel comes from Old English, uh, G-O-D pronounced goad or good, uh, meaning good, and spell meaning news. So it is an accurate translation of the, from Old English, of the meaning of the Greek word. The E-U at the beginning of the word means something that is good or pleasant. Angelion relates to an announcement or news. So literally, evangelion means uh, good news. Now, we have some passages that where we have a narrow use of the gospel, which refers only to that news that is uh, that aspect of Christian teaching that tells us uh, what we need to do in order to have eternal life. But then we also have a broader use of the gospel. For example, Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. The gospel here is related to power again, which we might translate ability. It's not power. Uh, like a, a, a mystical metaphysical power. It is an ability that God has, the power of the God. The, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Now, that's not justification. We studied this in our Roman series many, many times, that this, this word group based on the Greek verb sozo, here it's the noun, soterion, never ever refers to phase one salvation or justification. It's not a synonym in Romans for justification. It refers to the entire process, all three phases, phase one justification, phase two sanctification, and phase three glorification, and so this isn't restricting the word gospel to uh, just what a person needs to be saved to be uh, or believe in order to be justified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have another mention of it in a broader sense. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I proclaimed to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Notice the present tense there. It's a ongoing reality in terms of, of uh, the spiritual life. You're, you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. Okay, so that is holding fast to the message. Uh, that has to do not with justification but with the ongoing spiritual life. And then he says, for I delivered to you, and then we have several things that he taught as part of his gospel message, and it's simply stated, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and the sentence goes on. 
and that he was seen by Cephas, that Cephas, that is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500. How much of this do you have to believe in order to be justified? That's the question. Some people think this defines the gospel content. But if this defines the gospel content, that I not only have to believe Jesus died, I not only have to believe he was buried, I not only have to believe that he rose on the third day, I also have to believe he appeared to Cephas and to James and to the 500. And if I don't believe all of that, then I'm not justified. But I don't know too many people who want to include the appearance of Jesus to Peter and James as part of their gospel presentation. Uh, this is a broad use of the word gospel. It means the Christian Christian teaching, all of Christian doctrine is good news. And and uh, But sometimes we just talk about the foundational element, which is phase one. Here in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he's using good news in its narrow, I mean, in its broad sense, uh, our gospel, our message, uh, good news, teaching about the entirety of the Christian life, from new birth to face-to-face with the Lord at the rapture, First Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians 4.17, uh, <clears throat> this was our message, and it didn't come to you just by word, but they saw manifestations of God's power or God's ability as they saw People who responded in transformed lives. It's not, uh, we're not told about miracles that Paul performed there. That's not out of the question. As an apostle during the first century, he clearly had the ability, as a sign of the apostle, uh, uh, as a sign of his apostleship, to perform uh, certain uh, signs and wonders. So, uh, verse five, our gospel did not come to you in word only, simply as a message, but you also understood its power, ultimately power of changed lives, by means of power, by means of the Holy Spirit, who is the change agent in the Christian life. He's the one who convicts uh, when people hear the gospel and makes clear to them the issues of the gospel. So they understood that, and in much assurance, in much assurance, the word there in Greek is uh, plerosophia, which means confidence, uh, confidence. And so they understood with confidence the message of, of the gospel. And second, he said, this was also evidenced in our life. You knew what kind of men we were among you, that we weren't there to uh, take advantage of you or to use uh, our religious teaching as a means of uh, of transferring your money from your pocket to our pocket. It was uh, we were there in order to help you understand how to have eternal life. As a result, verse six, Paul says that they became imitators of us, imitators of us, uh, as they imitated Christ. It wasn't that we want to be like Paul. It's that we want to imitate Jesus Christ, and Paul and his followers were imitating Christ as they walked by the Spirit. So as a result, those in Thessalonica also became imitators of Christ, and they received the word even in much tribulation. See, that's that role of, 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 uh, uh, of coming under uh, opposition, coming under adversity, coming under pressure, and in their case, they were coming under persecution. And this was their uh, their tribulation, their affliction, but they had joy in the Spirit. See, they're already pushing on uh, in terms of James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various 
trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And as a result of that, they became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And that's true for us. As God the Holy Spirit works in your life and mine, we become examples to others. People see how we live. They see that we don't react the same way that unbelievers do. They see a difference, or they should see a difference in our lives. We don't react on the basis of our sin nature, although, truth be told, we do that too often. We need to learn not to. We need to stop it. We need to learn to react on the basis of the provisions of God's Word and become examples. As a result of that, Paul goes on uh, further in verse 8, uh, for from you, for from you, starting off with the Greek word gar indicating further, uh, further explanation. So this is showing, verse 8 tells us how they became examples. For from you, the word or the message of the Lord, that is the gospel in its narrow and full sense, the gospel sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Their reputation went beyond Greece and Macedonia. It went out to other places around the world. People heard about what happened to those believers in Thessalonica. And their faith toward God had gone out, he says, so that we do not need to say anything. What high praise from the Apostle Paul. You haven't been saved that long, but the transformation is so profound that that it's built a reputation that's going worldwide because of what the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are doing in your lives. That should be true of every church. That should be true of everybody at West Houston Bible Church and every other church in the world if you've been saved more than three or four months. Uh, Reaching a certain level of spiritual adolescence or spiritual maturity is not a lifelong process. It can be achieved very rapidly. The Apostle Paul castigated the Corinthians because they weren't mature within just a couple of years. And so too often we have people who think, oh, it takes a lifetime of Bible study. Well, it takes a lifetime of Bible study to understand the fullness of the Bible, but it doesn't take long to figure out a lot of basic principles of the Christian life and to at least reach a level of of spiritual maturity so that you can start being really, truly used by God and, and serving Him. So then we read um, at the end of verse 8, So he says, so we do not need to say anything. Well, we need to come back next time and just finish up the last two verses in, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 and uh, before we get into the main body of the epistle starting in chapter 2, verse 1. So we'll stop here and look forward to the next time in our study of 1 Thessalonians. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together. Challenge us to grow to spiritual maturity. May we make that a conscious goal in our lives that we're not going to just simply uh, wait for something to happen, but we're going to push on and push ourselves to learn the Word of God, to be involved, to serve, and to let God the Holy Spirit challenge us and mature us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.